Welcome to the Living Faith Missionary Church Podcast. You're about to listen to a message from Pastor Chris Starn, Senior Pastor at Living Faith in Yoder, Indiana. It is our prayer that this message is an encouragement and a blessing to your life. So if you've got your Bibles, let's go to the book of Isaiah, where we're still uh, wandering around in this book. We're, we're up to chapter 6. I'm kind of excited about, uh, about this chapter one we probably most people have heard parts from, but I want to I want to dig into this a little bit. You know, for, it was my birthday a couple weeks ago, and for my birthday, I decided what I wanted to do. I wanted us as a family to do something kind of fun together. My kids, you know, I've, I've mentioned the Legos. My kids love Legos, so I bought without them knowing about it. I bought a Statue of Liberty Lego set. She sits about that tall. Something like 3,000 or 2,000 some odd pieces. And I decided that on my birthday, the kids and I were going to sit down and we're going to go through and we're going to build a Lego set. And it was good because Beth says she can talk to them about the poem that we're going to talk about a little bit here, about the things about the history of it because they can use it as part of, part of homeschooling. And we, so far, by the way, we've only gotten the pedestal built. So, and we don't even have it complete yet. We still have two more bags for the pedestal. So it's exciting though. You know, the Statue of Liberty has been a beacon to the world of the, that, that proclaims out the liberty that our country was founded upon. When uh, immigrants would come, um, especially when they came to New York, that's the first thing they saw because you could see it from a distance off. They saw the Statue of Liberty. Now, do any of you know the poem that is on the, in the pedestal? And it's, it's a long poem, so I don't expect anybody to know it by heart. And you've probably heard part of it. It's actually called The New Colossus. And I want to share a part of the poem that probably most of you are familiar with. This first part you may not know, but uh, the, the end of it that I'm going to finish with here today, you will know. It says, Keep ancient lands, you storied pomp. Which I thought was interesting. It's kind of thumb and noses at all those people who don't want the people that they're sending to us. Christ, she with silent lips, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. And as I was thinking about that, what's interesting is for many generations in our country, we've had, we, we really want to be self-sufficient. We want to raise our kids to be self-sufficient. That has been, for many generations, has been what we want to do. You know, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps has been a common idiom, a common, common phrase that was used to challenge people to persevere. You got problems? Then, then fix them. I'm not so sure that the most recent generations understand that and are not necessarily so much about pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps, more about having the government help you pull yourself up. And usually you find the government is cutting your bootstraps so you can't help yourself out. Now some people at times have thought that maybe that poem needs to be changed. Instead of give me your tired, your poor, we want give me your tired, your poor who can stand on your, their own two feet. The reality is that it's impossible to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps any more than we can save 
ourselves from ourselves. You know, we, we've, in our society, sometimes we make an idol of self-sufficiency. And sometimes in our churches, we've done the same thing. So the problem is, is that when we make self-sufficiency an idol, we begin to devalue those who are financially and spiritually poor. We don't, we don't come alongside them and help them. What we do is we just, you know, you can do this. You can make yourself better. You, you, if you watch any of the popular um, pastors today, a lot of the popular pastors today out on YouTube, you'll find that a lot of them are mostly speaking a, what I would call a self-help. You know, you've got Jesus in you. You can do anything. You're amazing. You're awesome. Completely counter to what Scripture tells us, that we're all sinners, broken, and we need a Savior. But we make an idol out of it. In the process, we devalue the actual community itself. We have devalued the church community. We don't even want people to pray for us anymore. We don't want people to know what's going on and what we're struggling with in our lives. Because we've devalued it. We're afraid of what they're going to say about us, what they're going to think about us. Well, we need to be praying for each other. I'm not saying you air your dirty laundry all the time. You need to to some people. But we need to build the community. We need to build it and value it. We claim to be Christians living in a Christian nation, but we've, we've pushed Jesus in the gospel to the side. We've pushed them to the corners of our lives. We preach a watered-down gospel that sounds more like self-help. We've trivialized the great commandment and the great commission. Not to mention loving our neighbors as ourselves living together in community, sharing life from the same table. I mean, we've seen this in the last few years, neighbor turning on neighbor, separating. So I always tell people when we've talked about what we've gone through, I say, you know, understand that this comes from a much deeper evil than whoever you want to lay, your, lay it on, Fauci, NIH, whoever. There's a much deeper evil. Well, how do I know this? I know this because it's separating us. And Satan's goal has always been to separate us. He, his first thing was to separate Adam and Eve from God. And he's using the same playbook on us today. It's evil. What we're going to see, we've seen already with Judah. Judah finds himself in a very similar position as we are in today. You know, chapters 1 through 5, we, we saw that um, but Judah was failing spiritually. They were not turning to God. Now, now, granted, you know, they said they were God's chosen people, and they had the temple, and they believed in God. But they refused to walk in the light of God. It's one thing to believe. It's another thing to live with God. So I always come back to the verse, you know, even the demons believe and they shudder. But they don't trust. They don't walk in the light of God. And it's going to take a radical act of grace to turn them around. And it, it, it is. It's going to take something so, uh, so huge to get them to finally understand because they know the truth. They know what they're supposed to do, and they're intentionally following falsehood. So in chapter 6 through 11, what we're going to do, we're going to see, we're going to witness the awakening power of God's grace. 
And what's interesting, it's going to begin with one person. It's going to begin with Isaiah. And, and my goal as we go through chapter 6 through 11 is that you and I get a good idea of how radically we need Christ in our daily lives. How radically we need God in our lives. So if you look at Isaiah 6, let's start with verse 1. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, King Uzziah is either dying or he died. And if we go back, you can go back to 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 26, and you can read uh, the, 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 the life of King Uzziah, his kingship, and how God blessed him so much. He had a long reign. God blessed the people. He blessed them greatly. But the problem was, and it's the same problem many of us have today, when God blesses us, we don't know how to handle it. We begin to turn inward. Rather than praising God for our blessings, we think that we did it. Oh, they, they confirmed the traditional faith. They'd go, to the, they'd go to the temple when they were supposed to. They'd bring their lamb for the sacrifice. They'd do everything they said they were supposed to do, at least in their eyes. But God, it just seems that God had become unreal to them. There was not this daily affirmation of God, of having God in their life, life walking in the light of God on a moment-by-moment daily basis. They didn't do it. And what would happen is with the king, when the king, he would cry out to God and say, God, I need you, and God would bless him. And then he would get strong, and he'd win battles, and all of a sudden he started getting prideful because he thought it was himself doing it. And he forgot God. And in the process, the people did the same thing, and the whole nation became complacent. I see that today in our world, in our nation, in our people. We have become complacent. We become complacent in our in our walk. We become complacent in our nation. And I'm afraid we're finding ourselves in the same place that Judah was. You know, I, I've, I've said this before that what we see in the Old Testament are are foreshadowings of what's going to happen in the New. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a few minutes. But I see I see what's happening what happened in Judah happening today. I know, humans, we're the same. There's, there's, not, there's nothing new under the sun, as Solomon says. So I, I think that we're finding ourselves, this is a great way to look, to look at what was going on in Judah. What were they doing? What's God going to do now with that? What's it going to take? And I think it's warning us, listen, we better wake up. We better wake up as a people, and we better wake up as a nation. See, it was the end of an era. King Uzziah had died. When the king died, it changed everything. And we find ourselves in a very similar place in history. We're at the end of an era. And what we do going forward is going to matter greatly. It's going to matter a lot. Our technology, our prosperity, our self-centeredness has led us to this defining moment in our country. We can go one of two directions. And I'm afraid of which direction we're going to go. I'm not afraid of it happening. I'm afraid because there's a lot of people who are not going to see it and not going to realize it until it's too late. 
So what we find is Isaiah finds himself in the presence of God. He sees a vision. He finds himself in the throne room of God. And even though King Uzziah had died, the true king of the universe, of all creation, is still on his throne. And that's what he sees. He's reigning and he's holding court. Isaiah was given this glimpse into the throne room of God. And and we are lucky enough to get to share in that vision. Now, we, we have some strange ideas of what heaven is like. I always want to tell people, you know, you can, people say, yeah, heaven, heaven is streets of gold and, and these pearly gates. And I'm like, yeah, it is, but that's the new heaven. That's in Revelation. That's the end of Revelation. That's what we see the new heaven coming down. Heaven, heaven that we would experience today if we pass away or if we saw a vision would be the throne room. It would be a court scene, basically. We, if you remember, we went through the unseen realm. I went through Supernatural with, uh, by Dr. Heiser. We, we, we could see this. We see that it's a, a court scene. It wouldn't be, it'd be awesome. I mean, it's, it's wonderful. But we have this strange, sometimes we have these strange ideas of what heaven looks like. And in the same way, we have some strange ideas of what hell looks like. I'm not going to talk about hell today. Let's talk about heaven. And most of it has been influenced by the romantic period of art and writing. But what we got to do is we need to make sure that we are not gauging our perception of heaven, of God's throne room, on the romantic writings of humans and art. We need to make sure we're looking at it and looking at what it looks, says in Scripture about what heaven is like. And this is a great place for it because he sees this. And this is what he says. This is his description of in verse 2. He says, Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. God's throne room is a busy place. We know from, we know from, uh, from Psalm and we know from, um, um, from Michael Heiser's writing on, on Exodus and on, on different places in Scripture where it talks about the throne room of God, talks about the counsel of God, that God is there, the, the throne room is full of his heavenly host, the, the, uh, the, the sons of God, as they're called. And above him are these creatures that are angels. We call them angels. Angels is nothing, but, and actually that's not the correct term for them. It's mostly like they're heavenly beings. And they've got wings, and they're covering their, their faces. They're covering their body and their feet and their body with these wings. And they're moving about. They're not stationary. They're moving about. And they're standing above him. They, you might call them uh, God's attendants. You know, if a king is holding court, then he has all of his attendants around him. And that's what you see. They're called the burning ones. Seraphim means burning ones. So you can kind of kind of consider them like flaming nuclear-powered worshipers. That's what they are. They're, they're bright, and they're standing there. They're sinless, but they're not above God as far as they're positionally, they're standing above God, but they are not above God. They are not over God. Ephesians 4, Paul tells us that there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belonged to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in law. He is not in law, in all. And these seraphim are God's servants. They serve him daily around the throne. And they're circling, they're, they're up there and they're moving, they're constant motion, waiting to worship God and to do his will. You can also catch a picture of them in Ezekiel. 
Now, now Isaiah doesn't tell us how many there are, but we know the Apostle John, who also experienced the throne room of God, says that there are that God's heavenly host, there's myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. How could you imagine seeing that many heavenly beings around the throne room of God? And what are they doing? As they're waiting, what are they doing? They're waiting for God. They're waiting to worship Him. They're waiting to do His will. And what are they doing? They're standing there. And we see in verse 3, one of them calls to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. One tells the other something he already knows. And he's worshiping, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. They're delighting themselves in God because of his infinite holiness and his glory. They're not just repeating that God is holy. They're emphasizing the perfection upon perfection of God. Psalm 29.2 tells us, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. See, see, God is not just holy and holy and holy. He is holy to the holy to the holy. Exponential. Holy times holy. Holy, 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 holy. I mean, in math terms, he's 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 holy to the to the square root of to the square of holy. I mean, it's 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 phenomenal. There's no end to his holiness. And do you know that there is no other threefold adjective in the Old Testament that's used? This is the only one in the Old Testament that's holy, holy, holy. It's the only three-word adjective used to describe God in the Old Testament. God alone is God. There is none other like Him. He's not like us and just bigger and nicer. He is in his own category. He is holy to the holy to the holy. And what is amazing is God's glory, his holiness, fills the whole world. The whole earth. In Psalm 19, 1, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. I mean, have you ever really asked yourself, why, why did God create us? Why did he create creation? And why did he create humans? He was not lonely. He had the perfect relationship. He was perfectly content with what he had, what he already created. He had created, he had created the heavenly host, the sons, of the, the sons of God. Jesus was there. The Holy Spirit was there. They were in perfect unity, perfect relationship. There was nothing that he needed. Through eternity past, before time was even launched, God was complete within himself. He wasn't lonely, like I said. He was happy. He was full. Understand, God did not create us because of a lack of anything. He did so to spread the joy of his goodness and his glory. That's why he created us. 
And, and God's glory is so great that the temple can't even hold it. Heaven cannot even hold his glory that it spills out into all creation. And what does that mean for us? That means that you and I are not, and all of this creation is not ordinary. There's something special about us. Now, some people would argue there's probably something more special about me than others, but there is something special about us as his children. But see, what, what we do is we, we try to fill creation with things that we think needs to be there, monuments to our own glory. Statue of Liberty is a pretty... I love the Statue of Liberty. But you know that that is a statue to our, to our founding fathers, to the liberty that our country was founded on. It's not a statue to God. It shouldn't be anyways because that would be an idol. But it's, it, we make it an idol. We build businesses. We build athletic victories. We build hip songs. We build kingdoms. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with those if we keep them in the, the right perspective. The problem is we don't. Just like King Uzziah, as he began to build things, he's like, oh, this is me. I did this. Look at me. Look what I did. Not look at God. Look what he did. They become tools of our self-salvation and self-sufficiency. But the reality is God's glory is much greater than anything we could ever build. Do you understand that moment by moment, created reality is an explosion of the glory of God. Just look outside. Look at the sunshine. The kids and I have been taking an astronomy class on Thursday nights, and we were talking about the sun, and it's, it's amazing how it works. That is, that, that is an attestment to God's glory, that he could create something like that. And then you start looking at the number of galaxies that are in the universe. It, it, it blows your mind. And I sit there and I think, oh, isn't God amazing? Isn't, isn't he awesome? His glory is phenomenal. People like to think that, oh, you know, if, if I was in the presence of God, I'd ask him these things. Oh, I don't think so. We're going to find out how Isaiah reacts. I think if I was in the presence of God, I'd fall down on my face and I would not want to look up because I'd be so ashamed of who I am. That's the glory of God. We plod, see, we plod through our daily lives and I think we very seldom even understand the glorious presence of God. People say, well, you know, I want to go to worship. I want to experience God. I want to, I want to, I want to go away, you know, with my heart torn apart because I experienced the Holy Spirit. I mean, I hope when you come in here, you experience the Holy Spirit. But this is not the only place you should be experiencing the Holy Spirit. We should be experiencing God daily in our lives out there. We're absorbed. See, the problem is out there, we're absorbed by our petty issues, our ambitions, our desires. But the reality is God is the only one who deserves to actually reign in our lives. Because he's reigning supreme in creation. Heaven is spreading in our direction. Think about that. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
But we have to accept it and we have to enter into it. Heaven will ultimately take over all of creation. When Christ comes back, heaven, and he has a few cleanup things to do, but heaven, heaven will we'll have heaven here on earth for a while, for a thousand years. It'll be perfect. And then we'll have the new heaven and the new earth after that. We need to yield to the holiness of God. So Isaiah, he experiences the throne room of God and he he sees the seraphim proclaiming, worshiping God, saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. He sees the robe filling the temple and and, and filling out and spilling over into creation. And what does he say? Does he say, hey God, can I ask you some questions? No. Look at verse 5, he says, and I said, woe is me for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah is experiencing the majesty and the glory of God, and he realizes, compared to God, he is nothing. And he lives among a people who are nothing. In fact, not only are they nothing, but they are turning from God. And nothing they do will make it better. He says, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. I mean, can he really be that bad? Yes, he is that bad. And so are we. You know, the most telling sign of someone who has experienced the grace of God is that they'll say the right things about God and about his grace. And they stop putting themselves above God. That's how you know they've they've experienced God's grace. Now we might be tempted to say, you know, I'm not that bad. You know, I haven't I haven't done that, and I haven't done that. I mean, I'm better than most, right? Doesn't God grade on a curve? I mean, God should be lucky I spend an hour every week on Sunday mornings concentrating on him. I mean, what more does he want? But see, what we're going to find out is that when we experience the holiness of God, what we, our opinion about it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. What matters most is where we stand with God. And even when we think we've got it all figured out and we experience the presence of God, we still say, woe is me. Because I'm in the presence of something that's so much holier than me even, even in things I do right and the things I do that are good, pale in comparison to his holiness and his greatness. Just think about this. We, we daily breathe God's air. We eat his amazing food. And we're oblivious to the continuous display of his glory all around us. I, I doubt very much if we even have a right to be here. And Isaiah understands this. That's why he says, woe is me. Why is he woe? Because he knows God can destroy him like that, and he would be just. He would be just. He sees what is typical for his generation. His generation's got the same problem. And I'm afraid that's becoming true of ours too. 
But see, in that process of seeing the the gloriousness of God, he actually begins to see a change in his heart to humility. His pride is gone, and he sees he's humbling himself. He says, because I I see the king, the Lord, I have unclean lips, but the people have unclean lips. He realizes how how he's fallen short of God's glory. He can't make himself holy enough to be in God's presence. In order for him to be in the presence of God, his, the glory and the, the forgiveness has to come from someplace else, but not from him. And this is what we see in verses 6 to 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to him, having in his hand a burning coal that was taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. What a great image. A seraph, which is singular for seraphim, a seraph changes his flight plan, goes to the altar of God, approaches Isaiah with a coal taken from it. The altar was a place of sacrifice, a place of atonement, a place of forgiveness. And he takes the coal and he puts it on his lips. Now, most of us have had burns my, the, the thought of a hot coal touching my lips makes me shudder. I don't want to get burned on my, 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 my lips. I don't want my fingers to get burned. As a guitar player, I'm very conscious about my fingers. I, I, when I get a cut, I get real worried, you know, is it going to hurt too much? Or when I, my arthritis acts up, or, or if I, I, you know, God forbid I break a finger or lose a finger. I think it's kind of petty of me to think that. Because I know of people who play, you know, I know somebody who plays with his feet. But that's just me. That's something I struggle with. But see, this cold doesn't burn him. It heals him. It forgives him. See, because this, this coal symbolizes the finished work of Christ. Remember I talked about symbols in the Old Testament that feed into the New Testament? This coal is a symbol of the work, the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Because he says... Your sins are forgiven. Your sin is atoned for. What could take away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. You know, we sing that song. That's it. Even in the Old Testament, the the sacrifices did not take away their sin. Okay? They still needed Christ. Jesus willingly took the place of sacrifice. He willingly went to the cross. Dying, the dying love of Christ is the only power that can awaken the dead person inside of us. It's the only one who could atone for the sins. And that's what God does. He comes to us today through the Holy Spirit. And, and we could, you could think about it. He's got a coal in his hand that comes from the altar, the place of sacrifice, the place of atonement. He says, I'm going to touch you and you're going to be free. Atoned forgiven because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Our sins are forgiven. We're no longer guilty. We can now stand in the presence of God. But, you know, Isaiah had to, had to willingly stand there and let that hot coal touch his lips. Think about that. How many of us would have, oh, no, no, is there another way, please? I don't want that. Nope, don't want that. We willingly have to accept Christ. We willingly have to accept his forgiveness and allow him into our lives to change our lives. Grace 
has now touched Isaiah. And he is, he's awakened. He's awakened to the glory, even more glory of God. And he wants to live for God. Because this is what he hears. He sees God. He hears this voice of the Lord. He hears God saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy. Blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. God is fed up with the generation Isaiah's generation. And I'm afraid he's getting fed up with us. I'm afraid he's getting fed up with me. Let's put it, make it even more personal. He's fed up with me. Doesn't mean he doesn't love us. Doesn't mean he doesn't love. He didn't love the people of, of Isaiah's generations. But he, but he wants to send them a message. So Isaiah volunteers. Now when I read that, I did not read it right, because you must understand how this is written. You know when they when they translate this, they don't they don't put punctuation in there just to put punctuation in there. The Jewish words mean something. And here's what he says. He says, "Here I am." It's me. I'm right here. I'll do it. Because it's an exclamation point. I'll do it. It's me. He didn't say, uh, I guess I'll do it. No. He's excited. He wants to do what God wants him to do. Wants him to do. And what does God want him to do? He wants him to, to give a message to the people that you're, you're not going to hear me. Your hearts are going to be hardened. In fact, their hearts are so hard that God's going to harden them more. That doesn't seem fair, does it? Is it my fault that my heart's hardened? Well, yeah, because I start the process, but God knows that my heart's not going to change, so he hardens it even more because he wants to teach us a lesson. A lesson sometimes we find difficult to learn. Because there's no hope for Isaiah's generation now. There's none. But see, the beauty of what God is doing in this is the fact that while Isaiah's generation will not be saved, future generations will because of the message that God is giving Isaiah. But this generation, God hardens their heart. You know, every time, every time we hear the word of God, we, we walk away from it one of two ways. We either walk away from it feeling closer to God, or we walk away from it feeling farther away from God. Indifferent. We never stay the same. You know, we think that we think that we can hold this at arm's length and say, you know, I, I got a Bible. We hold it at arm's length. I mean, I don't want to I don't want to bring it close. I mean, I might have to actually live by it. So we hold it at arm's length. But when we do that, we're already saying, my heart is hardened. See, these, these very words that bring life can also harden our hearts. And, and I'm afraid that we can't expect God to always do a miracle. You know, take out the chisel and chisel away the hardness of our heart. He won't always do that. You know, when Jesus was here, he performed a lot of miracles. 
And, and, and a lot of people saw it, but I want to tell you, there were a lot of people who walked away from those encounters with Christ with a hardened heart. It didn't change them. People today in some churches believe, well, we got to see miracles. If we just saw a miracle, we'd believe. No, you wouldn't. You'd still not believe. Because it happens all the time. Miracles happen right in front of us, and we miss it. God is still working. He's not just sitting back waiting. He's doing things. And mostly, he works in his word. And if God's word is not enough to soften your heart, then what's it going to take? What's it going to take? See, if we resist God, what he does is he withdraws the light from us. He withdraws the light of our understanding. People read the Bible and say, I, just don't, I, I, I don't get anything out of it. Yeah, because you're resisting God. You're resisting God. And our faith will become impossible. See, our response to preaching of God's word is going to reveal our true feelings about Jesus. And who he is and who he is in our life is we fall, we rise or fall upon that. So Isaiah is going to have to deliver a pretty dire message to his people. And like most of us, he's, going to, he's, he's got one question for God. He says in verse 611, at the beginning of it, he says, Then I said, How long, O Lord? How long? Isaiah, is, he's in anguish over his friends, over his people. And there's no pleasure in this message that he's giving. He wants to know, How long, Lord, are you going to do this? How long is it going to take? Don't we ask that today? How, Lord, this world's in a mess. How long are you going to allow it to be this way until you come back? How long? How long until your judgment? How long is it going to last? How far are you going to go? And he gets his answer in verse in the rest in verse 11 through 13. He says, God says, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. Huh. When I read this, I, my first thought came to Revelation and what happens towards the end of the tribulation. The world is destroyed. A tenth of the people probably, not even a tenth of them remain. Foreshadowing. It's going to be devastating. Think of a, floor, a florist. Don't think of a florist. Think of a forest. Think of a forest that has been cut down and the only thing left is stumps in the ground. And then what happens? They burn. Not just just the trees being cut down. The stumps get burned. And you know what is happening? Judah is going to collapse for one reason. One reason only. Because they refused to listen to God. They refused to listen to him. But even so, even in the midst of this, God's grace is still going to appear. Because at the end of verse 13, it says the holy seed is its stump. Hmm. See, a remnant is going to survive. The stump is still going to be there. God was done with Isaiah's generation, but their faithfulness, their unfaithfulness was, was not going to stop salvation. 
Salvation was still going to come. The holy seed will come. A branch from a stump that is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the branch. And what's going to happen is the grace of God is going to remake the whole world. And in chapter 11 of Isaiah, we're going to find out more about this stump and this branch and this seed. And this is where the faith kids have an advantage. See, because they've been studying. What do you guys have been studying? The Jesse tree. What is the, what's the significance of the Jesse tree? Oh. What comes out of Jesse's tree? Branch. Mm-hmm. Who's that branch? Who is it? Jesus. It's Jesus. See, they got an advantage over you got an advantage over the adults. Miss Beth has been teaching you about the Jesse tree. And that's what we're going to be talking about as we go forward. They know about the stump. See, our hearts, whenever we, whenever we understand the gloriness of God, our hearts should be leaping for joy of God's grace. See, what we need, we need more grace. Grace that overcomes our failures. See, there's nothing in us, there's nothing I can do, there's nothing I'm able to do, what I can think that is going to save me from my own deadness. We need to guard our hearts. We need to watch out for a hardened heart more than anything else. We need to eliminate rigidity and gratitude and a demanding spirit in our lives. We need to watch out for that unmelted heart that sees the injustice, and it has no compassion for anybody. There's plenty of people like that in the world. We don't need any more. We definitely don't need it in the church. We need them in the church so we can help them turn around. But as believers in Christ, we don't need to be acting that way. Beware of the mind that looks for excuses not to believe. Resist the impulse to put off a humble response to the Word of God. Don't don't think that the sermon applies to someone else. I, I, I've said this before and I'll say it again. When I write a sermon, you know what? I'm not preaching just to you. I'm preaching to me. Because all these sermons, I, I'm looking in a mirror and I'm, I'm pointing at you and there's three fingers pointing back at me. I don't preach a sermon just to preach. I preach it because it's words that I need to hear also. Do not think it only applies to somebody else. God knows and he watches and he knows how you hear his word. So I want us to hear it now before we go to communion. I'm going to go all the way to Isaiah 66 too. He says, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Thank you for joining us today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. If you're watching on YouTube, please like this video as it will help in spreading this message into the global online community. Please consider subscribing to our page so that you will receive notices when we post new messages. If you're watching this on Rumble, please hit the Rumble button for this video so that the gospel can be spread into the What Rumble community. Also, consider subscribing to our Rumble channel. You can also listen to our podcast on Amazon Music and Apple Podcasts. We hope you have a blessed day.